I think I'll do try question mark. Um, yeah, I was wondering how to like say that. Um, okay. Try? <laughs> yeah. Put the question mark on the teleprompter. Welcome to the Swift Over Coffee podcast. I'm Paul Hudson. And I'm Sean Allen. In between traveling to yet more speaking events, last week I got to launch the Swift Community Awards for 2018. It's in the nomination phase right now, which means anyone can put forward the people and projects that have helped them the most over the last 12 months. Yeah, Paul, this was actually the first year I've seen you do this. I know you've been doing it for a couple years and I've been following you for a while, but I don't know, I just must have missed it. But that was a pretty cool idea with one little exception. Uh, I didn't see a category for the best bald bearded iOS YouTuber. What's up with that? Where, I'm a little bummed. Where's that category? I thought I had a real shot at winning that one. What's up? Well, uh, I think even without that category, I hope you can still find time to nominate a few things. Uh, you go to hackingyourself.com slash awards, uh, and there's even <clears throat> a best podcast category. Who would you nominate there, Sean? I don't know. There's this really, really good podcast, two amazing hosts that their passion for Swift just you know exudes out. Uh, it's head and shoulders above all the other podcasts. Ah, I know exactly the one you mean. It's Fireside Swift, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. So I'm going to nominate Zach and Steven from Fireside Swift for sure. Maybe they can return the favor and, you know, give me the uh, the best beard category or something like that. I don't know, Steve. Zach, you out there? What do you think? All right, Paul, let's talk about some news. What do you think? Uh, the first thing up is iOS 12 has hit 50% adoption in mm. record time. So uh, it has outpaced iOS 11 by quite a bit. So this time last year, iOS 11 was about 38% uh, adoption. So iOS 12 is, bear with me here, swiftly outpacing it. Uh, so why do you think that is, Paul? Uh, what are some major factors that people are upgrading you know, so quickly? Well, it's certainly not a result of the dazzling new features in iOS 12, let's face it. A bit of a barren wasteland on that front. I do wonder whether perhaps the biggest reason is they didn't deprecate any devices this year, so everyone could upgrade, including the very, very old devices, all still work great now. Yeah, that's true. And a big uh, thing that I heard is also the performance gains from iOS 12 uh, were mm. huge. And then, of course, right around the corner, we have iOS 12.1, which is bringing a slew of brand new emojis. So if somebody hasn't updated to iOS 12 yet, we all know they're going to update then because what drives the most adoption? Of course, emojis, right? Got to be emojis. You know, there's a new raccoon emoji and a cupcake. Everyone loves new emojis, surely. Yeah, I saw this, the the you know picture of all the emojis. None of them stood out to me. I could do without them. I'll stick with the classics. Let's move on to Swift Evolution, where SE0230 is now in review. That's about flattening nested optionals re resulting from try question mark. Now, Paul, I get this at a high level. When using just try question mark, you end up with nested optionals or double optionals, which can be difficult to reason about and is almost never the desired effect. So the author of the code has to use some workarounds, such as like a double if let or a guard let statement. Let's face it, any code that produces double optionals is never pleasant. I, I, I cannot think of a single time when I've wanted an optional optional. Now, I really liked how Suresh Khanlu summed up the old problem. Why would I want a double optional? I'm trying to omit the error, not still have to deal with it. Right, right. And this proposal suggests that using an optional uh, try with an optional will flatten the optional optional into a single optional. Do you, do you follow that, everybody? You, you with me here? <laughs> so it will flatten the optional optional into a single optional. It's either all there or none of it's there. Uh, this is, uh, of course, a source-breaking change, uh, change, right? Yeah, uh, and that kind of surprised me. You know, everything after Swift 3 is supposed to be additive, which means it's the kind of thing that won't make existing code break. 
Now, of course, in practice, Apple's overlays change regularly as they refine their Swift APIs, but it's very rare the team will break actual straight Swift code. But in this instance, I think it's a really useful refinement. The proposal writers point out that using a conditional typecast like as question mark also flattens optionals, as does optional chaining. So that leaves conditional tryout by itself as an irregularity. So I hope it gets fixed. Yeah, well, we're supposed to hear the results of that any day now, so we'll know soon. In fact, if you don't follow the Swift evolution closely, be sure to give at Swift over coffee a follow, and we'll be sure to tweet out the results as soon as we find them. And then finally, something developers have been dying for for years is we can finally delete apps from App Store Connect. Now, yes, I heard thousands of you know rejoices you know when when this came out. Uh, I actually don't have that many apps up there. When I, with my contracting, I've been building other people's apps more than mine. But Paul, I imagine someone like yourself who's been doing this for years, you have to have a ton like this. Had, I can't imagine what your App Store Connect looks like. I, I, it's an absolute, absolute mess. So many apps I shipped, so many apps I didn't ship, but I planned to ship. Uh, you know, I, I actually, I actually distributed, finished on the App Store, well over 100 personal apps, plus many, many hundreds more for companies. Uh, I'll be so happy to wipe the slate clean, delete the vast majority of mine back to almost day one, uh, and you know, get rid of it all. My very first app was back for iPhone OS 3, hasn't seen support for years. I'd love to get rid of that kind of cruft. What, what, what was that app? I'm curious what your very first iOS app was. <laughs> uh, so my very first iOS app was for a, I used to love learning multiple languages. So I made an app that is a flashcard app for many languages simultaneously. So it'd say, you know, uh, here's a word in English. What is the same word in Spanish, French, Japanese, and Chinese? Uh, at the same time, it's try and guess all four for the same word. Um, and actually, Apple banned it. Apple refused to uh, approve it at first. I got why, multiple why, times why did they ban it? Uh, I, I called the app Flashzilla, uh, and back in the heady days of iPhone OS 3, they were terrified of Adobe Flash, so they said, um, uh, you can't use the name Flash in the, file, in the, in the app name. Obviously, I appealed, and <laughs> I got through eventually, you know? I say, so it had nothing to do with functionality, you didn't mess anything up, just the name had Flash in it, and they're like, nope, none of yeah, that. It, it even had, the email was, uh, dear first name. <laughs> your app <laughs> app name it cannot be approved for reasons to desert so they, they put in no effort back then wow, as opposed wow. to the fractionally more effort they put in now how about you yeah well i would only have like three or four on there uh, my first app was actually done in my boot camp so it was under uh, my partner in that apps app store connect account so really mine is pretty barren uh i had one app up there called UReact, which was a an iMessage app that i have since like removed from sale but uh, I'm just pretty anal. I, I don't like clutter and like anything. So uh, seeing all those old apps on there that I just want to get rid of, like now I can finally have it nice and clean. Uh, so pretty pumped about that. Whoa, you took your iMessage app off the iMessage app store. That's, that's probably half the catalog of iMessage apps. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah, I'm, I'm single-handedly destroying the iMessage app store by pulling down an app. All right, Paul, now it's time for our picks of the week. What do you got for us this week? Well, when I have multiple things running simultaneously, I normally rely on operation and operation queue. Uh, it used to be NS operation, NS operation queue. You know, I can start them all off, have the system manage threading, then wait for them all to complete. But recently I've been toying around with a much simpler alternative, which is dispatch group. It's a really simple object where you call uh, enter or leave as many times as you want whenever work starts or finishes. And ultimately the number of leave calls needs to match the number of enter calls. And when that happens, it means all the work's done and some other task can begin. 
Yeah, it's funny how you say that you just recently started playing with this just from my perspective. And this is probably a testament to like how many years you and I have both been doing this and, and the difference there, because I've only ever used dispatch groups. Like I've never really used operations and operation <laughs> queues. So it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, juxtaposition on how we kind of go about this. But so when using these dispatch groups, like how do you tell the system, you know, when you're done? Like, how does it know? Like, OK, move on. Well, you can attach a closure to be run when the, all the work's finished. There's a, a method called notify. Uh, you provide this with a, a queue to run on, such as the main queue on the main thread, and your code will get called on that queue when all the operations are finished, you know, when the number of leaves matches the number of enters. So let's say you have like five of these going on. Like what happens, you know, if they don't all finish or like one of them gets stuck? Like how do you handle that? Yeah, yeah. So well, there's a, a separate method called wait. Okay. Um, which would make your group wait for a certain number of seconds before continuing and return an enum telling you whether all the operations complete successfully or if it timed out because it hit your number of seconds so you can respond appropriately. Uh, I should say, by the way, it doesn't cancel the work when it times out, so you might find work completes later on once the timeout's expired. Mm, interesting. So, okay, so, so like I said above, I've only used dispatch groups. I don't have a ton of experience in the operation and operation queue. So am I missing any key functionality by only using the dispatch groups and not using the other method? I think it's fair to say that uh, dispatch groups are simpler. In operation queues, I, I've been reaching them because that's what I use and have used for a long time. So they're my first sort of port of call. They are my my hammer. Everything's an operation queued <laughs> like nail, right? Right, right. Um, uh, and one thing, this, you know, there are a number of differences. And one thing I really like is being able to wait for a specific time. It's really, really nice. You know, operation queue, I can say, wait until operations, all operations have finished. Um, but I can't put a timer on it. So I can't say wait five seconds and then move on. Um, but keep in mind that dispatch groups aren't necessarily about multi-threading. You can use them on a single thread if you really want to. Um, on the flip side, operation queues let us control how many threads are launched so as many as the CPU supports safely or you know fewer than that, for example. Plus, you can have dependency tracking so that one operation starts only when another finishes, even if they're running across different threads. So for me, it's been dispatch groups in the last few weeks. Sean, what have you got? Uh, yeah, I've been going down the rabbit hole of handling fonts. So my pick this week is UI font metrics. Never heard of it out there? Yeah, yeah, me neither until this week when I started doing this research. Uh, and basically, if you're using a custom font in your app, it doesn't support dynamic type on its own. Well, hold up there. Uh, just for listeners who might not have used it before, could you recap just quickly what dynamic type is and why it doesn't play nice necessarily with custom fonts? Uh, yeah, di so dynamic type was introduced uh, in iOS 7, and it's basically a system-wide uh, change to where the user can basically set their preference on how big they want their font to be. We actually discussed it a couple episodes ago because a survey came out where 40% of the iOS users didn't use the default font size, you know, and of that 40%, mm. half of them were smaller, half of them were larger. So, you know, it, it goes both ways. In fact, myself, after reading that article, I decided to go smaller and I love the way it looks. So I learned something in that episode. I've got a max sized phone. Oh, <laughs> I can go as big as I like with the fonts, and there's still loads of space. See, I, I've heard other people do the opposite, where they the bigger the phone screen, they actually go smaller. So like they don't have to scroll wow. or anything; they just get all their information. But they probably have you know eagle vision or something. <laughs> um, so uh, to continue that, dynamic type allows developers to you know specify headline, body, caption, you know whatever for various labels, and uh, iOS will automatically assign the varying sizes of the system font to match that. But 
that doesn't work if you have a custom font. It, it basically just used the font, now, you know, the system font, uh, also known as, you know, San Francisco. This is where UI font metrics comes in. Uh, the reason you may not have heard of it is because it was, it's fairly new. It was introduced in iOS 11 and allows your custom font to scale to the user's preferred dynamic type setting. So now you get the dynamic type with your custom font. So you get to have all the power of dynamic type while using whatever fancy pants custom fonts your designers asked for. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about how it actually works now. So so now that everybody knows what it is, hopefully you have a good grasp on that. Uh, how does it actually work? So uh, the first, let's point out that dynamic type doesn't scale all text evenly. It's not just, you know, a scaler that scales it. There are specific items, kind of like we mentioned before, you know, title, body, headline, caption, footer, all that good stuff. And uh, in the code, and it's always tricky to talk about code on a podcast, but we'll do our best here. Uh, but you can initialize a UI font metric object pass a text style. Now a text style is what I just mentioned before, that body headline title uh, as a parameter. And then you call dot scaled font and then you pass in your custom font, which you would have created. And this returns a UI font object that you can use. Uh, and now it will conform to dynamic type. Right. So now you can say if this font were a headline or some body or a caption, how big should it be? Right? Yeah, exactly. I actually uh, like using UI font metrics myself for scaling numbers. Um, so, for example, if you want to have dynamic type in HTML, uh, Apple actually provides special sort of magic font names you can use to get dynamic type with HTML, mm -hmm. but it's limited. You know, I wouldn't use it with code, for example. To be able to say, you know, uh, I normally have 17 point code font here, whatever. What's that when it's been scaled with dynamic type and inject that into the HTML? It's really, really nice. Oh, nice, nice. So, so now that we've learned about you know dynamic type and UI font metrics, I want to discuss kind of an enlightenment that I had when going down this rabbit hole. Paul kind of made a joke, you know, whatever crazy font your designer you know puts in there. Uh, I was kind of that crazy designer. I I always dismissed the default San Francisco font for very naive and ignorant reasons. Basically, it just looked like a default app, and I wanted my app to look different. You know, kind of the same way you don't use those basic blue buttons or you know the clear background with the blue letters uh, in your app. However. After researching this, uh, I realized you get a lot out of the box by using the default font. So, you know, things like we just mentioned, this dynamic type, uh, many accessibility features that you may have to jump through some hoops if you implement that into your custom font. So now I realize the error in my ways. And before I dismiss the San Francisco font in future apps, I'm really going to think twice about it. You know, is it worth going through all the extra work to have this nice custom font when the system font may suffice? Yeah, fascinating fact is that it doesn't just make it bigger or smaller. They're just the kerning, they're just the leading, uh, they adjust the font weight very gently. It's actually a very smooth transitions they have across various sizes. They do a lot of work with San Francisco particularly. Next up, it's our open ballot, where we discuss views from listeners. This time, the question is, how do you keep up with the evolution of Swift? And this is partly about how do you learn new stuff, but also how do you upgrade your code to use new stuff? Once again, we had stacks of answers from listeners. Thank you so much for that. We'll try and get through as many as we can. Let's start off with the folks who just dive in and start coding. Uh, we had a great answer from Roberto Raquelme, who said, personally, I try to keep up to date with Swift.org, the proposals and implementations. In my company, we use the betas from the first one, compile, see, and fix the errors. The main problem is the third-party libraries with closed code. There's a great answer here from Christaps Grinsberg, who said, I love that SwiftLang is open source, so you know what's coming. Absolutely true. Shaib said, uh, for applying changes, I think making a copy of your project and running on the newest Xcode version in parallel is better. 
when you're sure it's bug free, shift to it permanently. And our friend Baz Burke said, uh, compiling all the content by following Swift people on Twitter and following repos on GitHub. So all these answers are basically saying, just get in there with some code and see how it works out. And I've got a lot of respect for this because, you know, that's what I do when I'm first getting hold of new versions of Swift. You know, when I do a What's New in Swift 5 article, when there's <laughs> nothing else out there about it, I have no choice but to just type some code in, see what works, try it out, see it again, read the uh, changes in Swift.org and so forth, read the evolution proposals, and see how it actually works and try and uh, understand it more thoroughly. What about you, Sean? Yeah, I, I, like you said, I have all the respect in the world for, for people like yourself that do this because I certainly don't do this. I wait for you to do it. <laughs> You're on the front lines. <laughs> you you go do it. You build your playground. Then I'll digest that. So uh, that's pretty much how I do it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, Baz also, if, uh, for those that don't know, he puts together or he helps put together the Swift Weekly Brief uh, yeah. yeah, email slash you know newsletter that is super super helpful. So I use that, and then like I said, I wait for, I wait for those people that are on the front lines to go in there, figure it all out, and then you know digest it for me. So that's how I handle it. Yeah, Baz does a great work. In fact, it's interesting because Chris Stapps and others help write the Swift Weekly Brief by tagging things around Git, saying this would be interesting, this would be interesting, and it means it's fairly easy for folks to put together. It's a lot of work, you know, Baz, I'm sure, isn't sitting on his hands most of the time, um, but it's great that it's a real community effort finding stuff. We had loads of answers about great resources, uh, some actually mentioning Swift Weekly Brief. So Benedicto Hecate said, uh, mostly through various podcasts and Swift Weekly Brief, uh, he recommends Swift Unwrapped, saying it's a great resource for this although there wasn't a new episode in quite some time. He used to read these Swift Evolution forums, but the mental overload was too high. Damn right, quite frankly. Uh, Swifty McSwiftface says, I watched the WWDC What's New in Swift Learn About Swift Changes. Apple sees it's important. And uses Ole Begman's Playground to try changes out. Uh, Josh Adams says plus one to Ole Begman's Playgrounds. Uh, and Luke Street says again, Swift Forum, Swift Unwrapped Podcast, WW Twitter, and various blog posts. Yeah, so if I were to answer this question, if I wasn't one of the hosts of the show, I would have been in this group. Kind of like I just said previously, a huge shout out to Swift Weekly Brief, Swift Unwraps, uh, you know, Ole and Paul who put out the playgrounds. Basically, those are the resources I use to learn what's coming in the language. Yes, yeah, Swift Unwrapped is a great resource for our community. You know, uh, Jesse and JP, you know, firstly, they, they get actual Apple folks on their podcast, which tells you the level they're working at. They really want to dig deep into the why and how of Swift, much more than anyone else is doing at full stop. Yeah, and those those are some of my favorite like podcast episodes of all time because it's nice to see like these playgrounds, you know, what's new in Swift 5, but having the actual people that are working on it and explain the why and the reasoning behind some of these changes is it, super enlightening. There's some answers here with more resources that are were very flattered about Sean and I. Uh, so Emin Roblack said, uh, short answer, you guys. As a beginner with not a lot of knowledge, how to implement changes and go through documentation, I don't think I'd ever be able to keep up. Min Kim said, I read Paul's articles on Swift updates and try to use each one in code. And Cyril Garcia says, in the past, I've always relied on WWDC to learn about new changes in Swift, but it always felt like too much to take in. Then I discovered Sean Allen's Swift News, which simplifies or highlights some of the important changes in Swift and has been my go-to. Honestly, it you know, I can definitely speak here for Sean and I here. We're both extremely flattered, uh, honored, and privileged to be part of this amazing community. Uh, we we love it. You know, we, we love talking about Swift, writing about Swift, speaking about Swift, making videos about Swift. It's just 
such a great privilege and it's so much fun to have um, these very encouraging responses. This is a great encouragement for us already. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I feel a little sheepish even being mentioned here because I, I say all about Swift News is just curating the curation. So I like to think about it as like levels of understanding, kind of like I mentioned it before. You got those people on the front lines uh, that are in the forums, figuring it out, putting together these playgrounds. Uh, and then somebody like myself for Swift News, I take what they get me from the forums and then I try to even simplify that even further, you know, for maybe people that are newer to the language. So it feels like there's a process to this, right? Going from the forums to some community podcasts and then to even more simple stuff like my swift news it's like the uh, food chain of swift <laughs> there you go that's, that's exactly what it is uh some folks commented that actually it's it's too hard or just very difficult indeed to keep up uh, there's a great response from jen chang who said it's been much more of a reactive approach for me it's not ideal but we find out new ways of doing things through code reviews and when we upgrade the xcode version to the latest at the moment i.e get a load of fixits just lined up or deprecation warnings or whatever um, Alfonso Sensei second said, as a beginner, it's nearly impossible to keep up with all the changes between Swift versions. I've just been learning them if they will benefit a project I'm specifically working on, for example, serialization versus decodable codable. And one from Warren Gavin said, I understand the need for moving the Swift evolution process to discussion groups, but it seems there's more going on there than there was in the mailing list. And with the mailing list, I could just keep an eye out for mail subjects as I did my morning mail filtering. Yeah, I want to build on what uh, Alfonso said. Uh, so, because I know we probably have many, you know, people that are earlier in their career. I wouldn't worry too much about if you're not being able to follow the Swift evolution. Uh, as you guys may know, I'm three plus years into my career. I just started following it about six months ago. So I think when you're early in your career, you have a lot to learn. There's so much to learn about Swift and programming and building apps, trying to keep up with the cutting edge of the how the language is evolving. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't worry about that too much. Paul, what do you think about that? The thing is, there are multiple kinds of changes coming in. You know, for Swift itself, sometimes, you know, an old way is dead, a new way of doing it. So, you know, the selector changes made uh, or key paths uh, or codable. You want to get rid of your old code, rip it out and put the new code in. That's that's the new standard, basically. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are additive changes like, you know, hash warning, hash error. I love that change. It's a brilliant change. But if you didn't use it, you're not really missing out dramatically. Mm -hmm. You know, your code won't break because you weren't using it, if that makes sense. Right, right. Um, so you, you can, you know, that there's as a, as a, a few things you want to do just to keep your code ticking over, but you haven't got to use the full range of new things to really get the, the full benefit. That makes sense. Uh, there's some answers here sort of... Uh, kind of trying to ignore it if possible. Uh, Anthony says, for me, it's a struggle as coding for one year now is still a hobby and not my main source of income. So yeah, absolutely fair enough. Um, and Eric Crickler said, uh, I haven't. For every company I've worked for, they want to maintain backwards compatibility as much as possible. That means the new stuff that comes out today, I'll be able to use in maybe three years. Uh, for indie dev, he's just started engaging with podcasts like this one, which is great. Um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, with Swift language changes particularly, they'll work back to iOS 8 uh, out of the box. You know, it's only when you're touching Swift, uh, sorry, iOS or uh, macOS or whatever APIs that are newer, that will obviously have to be tied to a version number. Otherwise, Swift is backwards compatible very nicely to old versions. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was going to mention. I thought he was a little confused with iOS, you know, features and APIs versus the actual language itself. So uh, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and a last one from Ion, learning new changes is not the main problem. The problem is when I learn something new and can't use it in the workplace, and then I start to forget it, and again, new things are coming out. 
yeah, this is kind of echoing what we just said about, you know, new iOS 12 features and APIs. This is always the, you know, the cycle we always go through. They announce stuff at WWDC, new language features, new APIs. Everybody gets excited. You can't wait to build it. And then because you have to support, you know, N minus one for iOS, you know, uh, versions, you don't really get to use that till the next year. And then sometimes you forget about it. So I, I feel your pain, Ion. I think it's a matter of, uh, I mean, there are many swift changes, right? You know, 4.1 was huge, 4.2 is huge. Um, and we both spent a lot of our time thinking about these new features, but we can't keep them all in our heads simultaneously. You know, things like random number generation, I have switched to that exclusively. The new 4.2 version is amazing, love it. But again, things like pound warning or hash warning, hash error, I mm-hmm. don't reach them instinctively just yet. Uh, it'll take me a little while because I've been without them for four years <laughs> to get them back in my muscle memory again, you know? Oh, that's that one's already in my muscle memory. That's like my favorite change in a very long time. Even though it's so simple, like I, it's my go-to. Already in the muscle memory. Oh, man. Harold Haskins, he's just so awesome. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Swift Over Coffee. But as always, we're going to leave you with next episode's open ballot question, and that is, what is the best way to make sure your code is thoroughly tested? Well, obviously, the best way is to pre-order my new book, currently called Testing Swift. But in the meantime, if other ideas, let us know. Yeah, and I, I actually can't wait to see these answers because, you know, full disclosure, testing is by far the weakest point of my my game here. So I'm very, very excited to see the answers. I might read Paul's book. I don't know, probably not, but you know, <laughs> just kidding. I'm sure I'm going to get that because, yeah, I, I definitely need to step my game up in that area. You know, it's 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 40 bucks for everyone, but for you, you can get a special discount. It's 50 bucks for you, Sean. Oh, nice, nice. That negative $10 discount. I like yeah. it. I like it. All right, we'll see everyone next episode. Don't forget to subscribe and also follow us on Twitter at Swift Over Coffee. See you in the next one. Bye. Well,